gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp. And my co-host is Rachel Miller. And before we get to this week's episode, I want to offer a content warning as the subject of today's episode is sensitive, so should not be something to listen to um, among children and um, also anyone that might be sensitive to the subject. We are going to be talking with Sheila Gregoire about her book, The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. And I'm a little bit sick this week, so if I sound a little off, that is why. I wanted to mention a couple of things before we kind of dig in with her. Um, I read the book real quick for the podcast, and then now I'm going through it with my husband. This is an excellent book to go through with your spouse. I, I think you guys did an excellent job setting it up that way. There's some questions and things you can discuss throughout. Um, and also, there are so many things. I've been married almost 26 years. And so in my mind, I had all the things I hoped you addressed. And you you did. You addressed all of them. So just excellent job with the book. Um, but for those that aren't familiar with you, could you share a little bit about you and what you do? I know you have a blog and a podcast and a lot of projects. And then also tell us why you wrote this book. Sure. Well, I started off back in 2008 as a mommy blogger. I had two daughters at home that I was homeschooling and I'd already written some small books, but I wanted to build more of a platform. So I started blogging without knowing what I was doing. And I mostly wrote about, you know, housework and marriage and parenting and things like that. But I noticed that every time I talked about sex, my traffic went up. So I decided, hey, people want to hear about sex. So I started talking about sex more and more. Um, in 2012, my book, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex came out. It was followed by 31 Days to Great Sex. I did a couple of courses and I just kept writing in this field. My blog was growing, but 
it seemed like a lot of people still had the same problems, no matter how much good information I put out there. And then two years ago, it was January, 2019. Um, I was just, I had a migraine one night. I just didn't want to work. And I pulled out love and respect because it was in my cupboard. And I had seen a Twitter conversation about the book. And I decided, you know, I'm just going to read it. I've never really read a marriage book before. I was always afraid of plagiarizing. So I read it and it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my living room because I couldn't believe how terribly Emerson Egrich treated sex. And I think that was when my ministry changed because I realized we can't just give healthy information about sex. We need to identify where the foundations of our sex teaching in the evangelical world have really gone wrong and demolish those foundations so that we can build them up properly again. I, uh, it's funny that you say that you started mommy blogging around 2008, 2009. I think that's around the time <laughs> I got started doing the same thing. I was, I was remembering I was mostly bedridden with a pregnancy and had time on my hands and mommy blogging was something fun and interesting. Things kind of branched off from there. Um, I really did enjoy the book. Uh, as a researcher, I was impressed with, with your research and how you went about addressing. And, you know, if, if you're into details, there's a lot of details in the book and you can get down and look at, you know, the questions and the survey answers. And there's, there's a lot of material there to really dig into. If you're not really into the research, you know, there's plenty of material there that's that's discussed and explained. But I really did appreciate the research that went into it. And I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about how you went about doing the research. Yeah. So one thing that we noticed as we started reading these Christian books is that the vast majority of them are based in someone's opinion. Like in, in and they'll say things with no backing whatsoever. Um, like Emerson Egerton in Love and Respect said one of the reasons that divorces are happening left, right, and center today is because we have two equals at the head, meaning that we need to have a man at the head making the decisions. And he cited nothing. He just made that statement. And that statement is false. <laughs> like it's actually not true. And yet in so many of our books, I found people would just make statements because they want them to be true, but there's no backing for it. And yet when I read secular marriage books, like the best-selling secular marriage books are full of research. And I knew that what I was going to be saying was going to be controversial. And so I thought, if I don't have any backing, no one's going to listen to me. So we just decided we were going to go big or go home. We thought we're going to do the biggest survey that's ever been done of Christian women. And I have on my team, I have Joanna Sawatsky, who's an epidemiologist and a trained statistician. Um, who was staying home with her babies. <laughs> so she had some time to work with me. Um, my daughter, Rebecca, is another co-author and she's trained in psychometrics. So she did our survey design and it was a long survey. It was like, it was at least 130 questions. Some people got more if they had been divorced um, or remarried or whatever. And yeah, 20,000 women filled this thing out and we wow. just have so much data and it was incredible. Well, I was one of the women that filled out that survey back when you. <laughs> well, <out>. thank you. <laughs> you know, it was, was a long survey. Um, I, I remember seeing it, and I'm trying to remember whether or not I sat down and did it, or if I looked at it and thought I don't have time right now and didn't get back to it. Like I, I but I remember seeing the survey. Yeah, I was filling it out, thinking this is really good questions. I, mm -hmm. I feel like before I started theology gals, I was kind of ignorant about a lot of was what 
is out there. Um, I got married in 1995. And so back then we had, um, we had intended for pleasure and what was the yeah. other one? The act of marriage. The act of marriage. This is the, the ones we marriage. had. Yes. I, I never read <laughs> the act of marriage really. Our pastor said, read this book. And we kind of looked at it and went, eh, we'll figure it out. Um, and so I feel like very thankful I had, um, I think my parents actually did a good job of giving me the right view of sex and marriage. And I, I was really protected from a lot of the stuff that I think maybe I, I, it came, you know, when I was young too, but I think it was far more with purity culture and some of that sort of thing. And so reading your book, I have all these girls saying things to me like, I was told that met that, I'm going to need to give my husband sex all the time and I'm probably not going to like it, but I need to do it anyways. Um, or he might look at pornography or cheat. You know, I'm hearing these things from girls and I'm like, where are you getting this? And I'm reading your book saying, oh, now I know where they got all of this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we name names. We name names. We give lots of quotes from all kinds of different books and show, yeah, this is like in the water. This is in the water in the evangelical mm -hmm. world. I was shocked. There was a couple times where I'm telling my husband, can you believe this? The, I, like I I had heard, I don't think you mentioned any, any book that I hadn't at least heard of, but I just really, aside from reading a couple chapters in Intended for Pleasure, I really hadn't read any of the books you mentioned. And I was shocked because these are books I hear talked about all the time. So can you talk about some of the myths that influence what we believe about men, women, and intimacy. Yeah. So what we did in our survey was we started off by saying, okay, what's your marriage? What's your marriage like? So we we looked at people's marital satisfaction. We looked at their sexual satisfaction, and then after that, we gave a whole bunch of different evangelical teachings and asked, have you ever been taught this, or have you ever believed it? And then once we had all that data, we could correlate and we could say, okay, if they believed a certain teaching, were they more or less likely to reach orgasm <laughs> or more or less likely to have high marital satisfaction or more or less likely to have higher levels of sexual pain? And we identified like a lot of beliefs that were hurtful for women's sexuality, but four main ones. And if there's one overarching theme that relates to all four, I think it's summed up in this quote by Emerson Egrich in Love and Respect, when he says, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So mm -hmm. sex is for men and it's not for women. And he goes on to say that a husband has a need for physical release through sexual intimacy, where you have a need for emotional release. So husbands, so he defines sex as a husband's physical release. That is what sex is to him. And we that that phrase release is found in love and respect, it's found in power of a praying wife, it's found in every man's battle. That's how many of our resources talk about sex is giving him release. Well, um you know, it's interesting. I've been married 20 years and when and same set of books that were out when we got married, um I'm pretty sure that we read at least parts of Intended for Pleasure it was one that was given to us. Um, the others I was aware of, someone gave me the power of a uh, praying wife. I never read it. Um, <laughs> there's others like that. And, and like Colleen, I was like, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, when we got this and I didn't, I'm thankful that our marriage was not more influenced by some of the bad things out there 
uh, that could have gotten to us. But um, in addition to some of these myths, and this is something that we've touched a lot on in various episodes uh, and that I've written on other places, but there are a lot of beliefs about men and women, especially within like conservative Christian circles that, and, and our roles in marriage and such that really affect us. What were you seeing in your, your survey? What do you talk about in your book about how these beliefs affect these beliefs about our roles in marriage and men and women affect us in our marriages and in intimacy? Yeah, it's funny because we measured a lot of beliefs about sex and then we also measured just general marriage stuff. And so, you know, we definitely found some beliefs about sex that were negative. But what was really interesting is we looked at whether or not women believed that um, the husband should make the final decision, for instance. We said, you know, if you're at an impasse, like what's the best way of deciding? And um, most women believe that a husband should be able to make the final decision. You know, if you, he's the tiebreaker, but very few people actually practice that. So people believe it in large numbers, but 78.9% of couples make decisions together collaboratively. It's not that he's the tiebreaker. Um, and only 21% of couples <laughs> make decisions where one person makes that final decision, even if they consult with the other person first. So most of us are making decisions together. What's really um, astonishing, though, is that as soon as you practice that, as soon as he actually does make the decision, even if he consults with you first, divorce rates go up by 7.4 times. Like your chance of divorce increases 7.4 times. And your chance of being in the top quintile in marital satisfaction just goes through the floor. It's just awful. <laughs> like it has all kinds of these terrible outcomes. And that's actually right in line with what John Gottman found, which is a secular marriage institute, that if a husband is unwilling to share power with the wife, and if he insists on making the final decision and key things in the marriage, that marriage has an 81% chance of self-destructing. So we talk about this idea of roles all the time, but the most of the people who are teaching on it don't live it out. And as soon as you live it out, bad things happen. <laughs> so what I want pastors to understand is maybe you need to start preaching what you practice. Like well, your chances are you are practicing collaborative decision-making with your wife, but you're preaching in your congregation that he is the head. And so he should make the final decision. And that practice is toxic to couples. And so maybe we need to start teaching something different. <laughs> and I hope that people listen to that one. So um, I told Rachel that for me in coming up with some questions for you, um, my questions are very influenced by the most common things women come to me with. And one of the big things I've, I've been mulling this over for a while now, because so many women come to me and say, can I ask you a question about sex? I don't know who else to talk to. And I'm like, why does nobody have anyone to talk to? <laughs> um, I, I had somebody to talk to. I had a woman that was in my life when I got married that had been married 20 years. And she was very transparent and open with me when she talked to me before I got married. And I felt like I could go to her afterwards. But women, I think a lot of things you talk about in the book, even um, women having orgasms and things like that, is things that nobody talks about, right? There's 
there's not a place for it. And I wish we had a place to do that better. Thankful for your book. But the most common thing that women have come to me with, and this was such a big shock to me, was women were coming to me saying, my husband never wants to have sex. And they were devastated. They're like, I was told that a husband was going to want sex all the time. And I'm lucky Mm -hmm. if I if he wants to have sex with me four times a year. And I was shocked Mm -hmm. by this because this was a new one to me, you know. Um, And I finally am like, I got to figure out why this is going on because I've had, I just kept having woman after woman coming to me with this. And I found out the large percentage of the time it was um, the result of a porn addiction. And the funny thing is, okay, we did an episode early in the podcast before Rachel joined me on when your husband's addicted to pornography. And we had this young, unmarried kind of obnoxious guy get mad at our episode because we didn't blame wives for the man's porn addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of times these wives are like, I want to have sex with my husband, but my husband wants porn, you know? Um, So you talk, I was so glad that you talked about this. I have a quote telling women just have sex. So he won't watch porn is doubly hurtful to women married to porn addicted husbands who are turning to masturbation in poor in, and porn instead of their wives. Many women live in sexless marriages because the husband prefers pornography. So can you talk about the lot, this lie that so many women are told if you just satisfy your husband sexually. And by the way, I know women who've gone to their pastors and said, my husband had an affair. My husband looks at porn, any of these two things. Mm -hmm. And the first question the pastor asks is, well, are you satisfying your husband sexually? (laughs) So talk about what you learned about that and that lie, because I think it's out there a lot. Yep. No, it really is. And you you mentioned husbands with lower sex drives. 19% in 19% of the marriages, um, he has the lower sex drive. In 23%, it's shared. In only 58% does the husband have the higher sex drive. And yet we treat it like it's 100%. And it's not. Like almost all of our Christian resources talk about how sex is a need that the husband has and the wife isn't going to want it. And that's just not the case. So we need to stop talking in gender stereotypes. But one of the most harmful messages is this idea that if you have sex, he won't watch porn. There was a focus on the family broadcast from November of 2019 when one of the hosts actually said that the reason he thinks the reason men are turning to porn is because they're not getting enough sex at home. And I had a woman send that to me, send that broadcast to me and alert me to what was said because they had just walked through a porn addiction with her husband and they were just on the road to recovery. And this just devastated her that focus on the family would say that, but it's all through our Christian literature, like every man's battle. Um, That series of books has sold 4 million copies. And it literally says once he quits cold Turkey, meaning porn or lust be like a merciful vial of methadone for him. And that's a direct quote. So it's calling women methadone for their husband's sex addictions. I mean, I can't think of anything more dehumanizing. That's awful. But it's awful. Yeah, it's disgusting. And even think about what that says. Like for people who don't know, methadone is a drug that you take when you're addicted um, to something else, like heroin, oxy, whatever. and, And it's supposed to wean you off the addiction. So basically, it's like methadone isn't what you really want, but it's what you'll settle for. (laughs) So by saying that the wife is the methadone, you're saying, 
he, what he really wants is to masturbate to that woman over there, but he'll settle for having sex with you. And so you can satiate him enough that maybe he won't want that woman over there for a time until his needs get. These wives think if I just do things yeah, enough, my husband won't look at porn or won't look at other women. And it completely and utterly misunderstands pornography and, and the whole dynamic. Because basically, by even saying that, you're agreeing with porn's definition of sex. Because what porn says is, I have the right to use you however I want. You exist for my sexual gratification. That is not the biblical view of sex. When you look at sex in the Bible, and this is really important to understand, because sex is not just about a husband's physical release. Biblically, Genesis 4 verse 1, Adam knew his wife, and they conceived unto them a son. And we laugh at that, and we think, oh, God was just embarrassed of using the real word for sex. But actually, that Hebrew word for to know there is the same word that David uses in the Psalms when he says, search me and know me, O God. Like biblically, sex is a deep, intimate knowing of another person. It is not a using of another person. Uh, so, you know, we know from the Bible that sex is intimate. We know it's pleasurable for both from Song of Solomon. And we know from 1 Corinthians 7 that it's supposed to be mutual. So we have this picture in the Bible of sex, which is mutual and intimate and pleasurable. And yet, when we talk about it, like when we say have sex so he doesn't watch porn, we are now making sex into something which is only about his physical release. And we're dehumanizing her. We're objectifying sex so that it really is, or commodifying maybe is the better word, so that it's really only about what someone can get out of it. And it's taking the beauty out of it. Like sex and porn are not substitutes for one another. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. And the more that someone uses porn, the more that their sexual response and sexual desire is, is tied in to dehumanization and using someone, and the less they're even able to get aroused in relationship. Um, and so a porn user is going to feel less and less libido for their wife, less and less desire for their wife. They're often going to get erectile dysfunction. That's far more common among porn users. Um, they could even get a delayed ejaculation, like lots of different sexual dysfunction disorders. And then what do our Christian resources tell women who are dealing with this? Well, you just need to put out more. And it's a misunderstanding of what's the, of the dynamics of the relationship. It's a complete misunderstanding of porn and it's a dehumanization of her. Yeah. It really is amazing the the number of questions that we get along these lines. Um, the number of women um, who are are struggling, and and many of them, you know, without anyone to go to, like like Colleen said, we have a whole number of women who have no one to talk to, or they feel like they don't have anyone to talk to. So again, we really appreciate um, your book and and. And your ministry, the taking the time and the effort to go out to put yourself out there, because I know this is not a topic that wins you uh, a lot of friends uh, at times. Um, you and I both, we've seen it, right? Um, <laughs> the pushback and the ugliness. Um, one of the other places that we see a lot of questions from women, or we, we see, you know, the influence of, of certain advice is how the purity culture has influenced women. Um, and again, you know, for Colleen and I, we're, we're a little bit older 
the 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 bulk of the women who got um, influenced by purity culture in the the women that we're hearing from. So we we kind of missed a lot of it. But um, what are you seeing about how purity culture has influenced uh, women and and men and their views on sex and marriage? Yeah, it's funny. When my daughter was 13, my oldest, I gave her I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and I thought it was a great book. And then by the time she was 17, we had totally ditched it, and uh, I was trying to set her up with people. So (laughs) we kind of lived through purity culture with my kids, and we pretty quickly figured out that it was dumb. Um, But, you know, another one of the beliefs, which we found was really correlated with lower orgasm rates and lower arousal rates, was this idea that boys will push girls' sexual boundaries. And that was heavily taught in youth groups. You know, boys are going to push your boundaries. So you need to make sure that, that you're keeping things under control. You know, he's going to be the accelerator. You're going to be the brakes. Um, Shanti Felden in her book for young women only, which was widely read in the 2000s, um, and was featured in Brio magazine by focus on the family for teenage girls. And, uh, she had this statistic which I believe she interpreted wrong and the question was a faulty one. So I don't agree with her findings on this, but what she said was that 82% of boys felt little ability and little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. So, and she concludes that if you don't want to stop or sorry, if you do want to stop, then it's better to not even start. That is problematic in so many ways, because basically what it's saying is that you're responsible if you're date raped. I mean, if he has little responsibility and little ability to stop, then he can't help himself. And so it must be your fault. That is such a toxic message. And yet that's what girls were given. And we interviewed a lot of women afterwards in focus groups to to look at how this message impacted them. And we talked to so many women who suffered from vaginismus, which is a primary sexual pain disorder um, where the muscles of the vaginal wall contract and make it really difficult to relax, making penetration difficult or impossible. And a lot of them traced it back to that message and, and the dynamics in their dating relationships. Cause what would happen is you're dating this guy and let's say that you really don't want to go beyond a little kiss or something, or even you don't even want to do that, but suddenly you find yourself kissing. And what's going through his head is, this feels great. This is amazing. And what's going through her head is, is he breathing too fast? Is he getting out of control? Where are his hands? Should I stop him now? Should I stop him now? What about now? You know, and so she's doing this hypervigilant thing. And many women describe it to us like, like, I was judging what was going on. I was standing outside my body, judging what was happening. Or I was spectatoring, another woman said, where I was watching to see whether when I should put the brakes on. And then these women get married and they have no idea how to reintegrate with their bodies. And so they have no idea how to experience arousal. And I'm not trying to argue that we should all like make out and experience arousal before we're married. I just mean we need to talk about this in a very different way. Because even that message, boys will push girls' sexual boundaries, that's such a dangerous thing to say to to teenage girls and to teenage boys. Um, And what we try to do in The Great Sex Rescue is reframe these messages into something which is healthy. And what I would tell teenagers and what I have told teenagers is 
Having sexual feelings is normal and natural, but you need to figure out what your boundaries are, and then you need to make a plan to stick to those boundaries. But even more importantly, you need to honor the boundaries of the person that you're with. And if you're ever with someone who won't honor your boundaries, that's a red flag that that relationship is not safe and you need to get out of it. Because girls were never taught how to recognize red flags because we were taught that all boys would do this. So many of those things, such pressure on on the girls. And I've heard girls also tell me that grew up in the purity culture that they felt like they lost their purity on their wedding night, that they saw sex as this <laughs> dirty thing that made them no longer pure. And I think the the big thing theme that I've seen, and even in the way that some of these girls talk about sex, where sex seems to be primarily about the husband's orgasm, um, that there's just this very wrong view of what sex is and what the purpose is and how wonderful it is for both husband and wife or how wonderful it should be and how to work towards that and work together towards that. Um, what are some of the ways that we can flip the script on these myths and common teachings? That's really the question of the hour, I think. We need to start prioritizing sex as something which is mutual. I think that's what it all comes down to is just understanding mutuality. And if you remember nothing else from this podcast, I want you to remember the number 47. Okay, 47 is a really important number <laughs> because that's our orgasm gap. And what I mean by that is that 95% of men and other studies have found this, like roughly 95% of guys almost always or always reach orgasm in a sexual encounter. But the equivalent number for women is only about 48. And so that leaves us with a 47 point orgasm gap. And that means that there's a lot of women who are just not enjoying sex. And often that's because the way that we define sex even is really about him. Like if I were to say, did you have sex last night? Which I'm not going to ask either of you that. But if I were to ask you that, you know, chances are you're thinking that I'm asking, did he put his penis into your vagina, move around until he climaxed? Like that tends to be our definition. But that's the definition of intercourse. And if that's what we think sex is, she could be lying there making a grocery list in her head, like not even being there. She could be lying there in emotional turmoil. She could even be lying there in physical pain and it would still count as sex. And what I want to challenge us to realize is that it is not sex if it's not mutual. It's just intercourse. And that is not God's design. That doesn't mean that if you don't have an orgasm, it doesn't count. Like, obviously, women have hormonal issues and um, our, our libidos are far more tied into our emotions than, than many men's are. And so there's always going to be a bit of a gap. But if it's not regularly something which is pleasurable for you, if it's not regularly something which is life-giving, but if it's instead simply an obligation to meet his needs, then that is not what the Bible is talking about. And the most the most damaging message that we measured was the idea that a wife is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. Um, that's preached in so many of our books. It's very widespread, and it's based on a misinterpretation, I think, of 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, the do not deprive verses. Because if what we mean by do not deprive 
him of sex is this one-sided intercourse. She's already being deprived. <laughs> like those verses are not telling her that she needs to give him one-sided intercourse because one-sided intercourse is depriving her. And the whole point of those verses is that neither of them is supposed to be deprived. What those verses are saying is, hey, people, sex is supposed to be a great part of marriage. So celebrate it and let it be great in your marriage. But sex biblically, not just one-sided intercourse. And that's what I want us to, to get a picture of is that it this isn't an obligation on the part of women. This is supposed to be a celebration and a culmination of our relationship. I really appreciated how you addressed that in the book, uh, especially with that passage. Um, it was very... It's that kind of that aha moment of of thinking about the verse and how to how to address it in a way that is much more biblically consistent. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you've you've mentioned a couple of things already, but what are some of the physical and emotional challenges uh, that many women deal with or face in marriage and intimacy? I'm on a mission to help people understand vaginismus <laughs> because it's been known for like 50 or 60 years. If you look at gynecological journals um, from decades ago, they talk about vaginismus and how it is far more common in religious conservative communities than it is in the general population. If you talk to any pelvic floor physiotherapist, they will tell you that most of their patients are conservative Christians. Um, this is our issue <laughs> and nobody's talking about it. We looked on the Focus on the Family site. They didn't have a single article about vaginismus, and they only had one that even mentioned postpartum pain. Um, like women's sexual pain is just not talked about, but they have tons of, of articles on erectile dysfunction. And of couples in their 40s and younger, vaginismus is far more common than erectile dysfunction. Um we had 22% of women say that they had had vaginismus at some point in their marriage. And I think it was like 28% also had um, postpartum pain or had postpartum pain without vaginismus. And 7% to the point that penetration was impossible. And yet we never discuss it. We just simply tell women you're obligated to have sex. And what a devastating message that is. I know because this was my story for the first few years of my marriage, and I had no word for it. I, I, had, I had no idea what was happening when sex hurt that much and we couldn't consummate. I had no idea what was going on. And that's the story I've heard from so many women. And this is our issue. So we need to, we need to let people know what vaginismus is and start talking about it. <laughs> Just even if it's not something that you suffer from, chances are you have a friend or a sister or a cousin who's going to. And so if we could just warn them before they're married, hey, you know, if you ever have pain so much that you can't consummate, like don't keep pushing through. Let's figure this out. There's pelvic floor physiotherapists. There's lots of treatments available. You can get over this, but you don't need to feel guilty about it. Yeah, I didn't even know what that was, honestly. <laughs> um, but I, when I was reading your book, like, this is how naive I am. Um, and I did not deal with it. But um, I was remembering back to my little group of female friends. And one of them got married and came back from her honeymoon. And the couple of us that weren't married said, how was it? And she just started crying. It was awful. She said sex was awful. It hurt so badly. But she said, how come nobody told me? And these are the things that just are not talked about. And um, so a girl gets married and 
doesn't even know, like, doesn't even have a category for this if it happens. Social media has been very eye-opening for me. And um, especially now, I'm empty nester now, and my, my life is a little bit different, but I talk a lot to a lot of younger women. And one of the things I've seen, even in Facebook groups, has just been a little bit bizarre to me, almost like a contest between these women. Oh, well, we have sex like five nights a week. Oh, really? Because we do it every day. <laughs> just like, okay, what is <laughs> like, what, what is this? I do not recognize this. These are not things I talk about. Um, but but also, <laughs> I've, I've had experiences where some of those same women are actually crying to me saying it's horrible and it's almost put this weird sort of pressure on some of these women but there was a quote in the book that i thought was so excellent um, that i'm going to read evangelical culture has used frequency as the marriage measure of marital and sexual satisfaction even though research has found that frequency is not an accurate predictor at all even for men, sexual satisfaction and interpersonal dynamics are far superior measures. I'm going to skip a little part. How happy your marriage is reflects the quality of your emotional and sexual relationship far more than it does the frequency of intercourse. Loved that. Really helpful. So how has this idea of frequency being most important affected the sexual relationship? It's bizarre, isn't it? Like we found this so bizarre. Um, but when you look at the books, it seems like all they're really aiming for is to just get women to have sex more. Right. And 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 because when we look at all of these beliefs, the funny thing is that like the obligation sex message, which is the most toxic for women, is also highly correlated with slightly increased frequency. And a lot like the porn message, same thing, highly toxic for women, but is correlated with slightly increased frequency. And by slightly, I, I don't mean you're going from like once a month to, to four times a week. I mean, we're going from like, you know, once a week to maybe 1.5 times a week. Like it's not, it's not a huge increase, but it is an increase. All right. And what we started to wonder is, is this a feature or a bug? Like, 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 are the authors who are saying this and who are pressuring women to have sex no matter what, do they really not care that it's hurting women? Like, is, is all that they care about the frequency? Because that's what seems to be happening. Because I don't see messages to men saying, hey, 47 point orgasm gap. What is up with that, guys? <laughs> like, right. Like, it's just pressure on women. <laughs> right. It's just you need to give him um, physical release. And, uh, you know, power of a praying wife. If he doesn't get released, he'll get his eyes will get cloudy. And, his, and you know, so you need to give him frequent release. Um, and this emphasis is just so strange because what what we have found in our study and what other studies have also found, so same result in many large-scale studies, is that marital satisfaction is far more linked to the quality of the sex life, meaning how good you feel about sex, how likely she is to orgasm, how emotionally close they feel during sex, um, and how they handle conflict than it is how often they have sex. <laughs> And yet we're not looking at any of the other things. It's like we find frequency something that we can deal with. So pastors, if you're seeing a couple with all of these huge problems and you have no idea what to tell them to do, you just say, we'll have more sex <laughs> because it's something you can measure. And that's just not the answer. You know, of course, 
I would love it if couples had more sex, but it needs to be sex, which is life-giving and humanizing, not sex, which is objectifying or commodifying. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced in reading your book. I've been convinced of this for a while, and I'm convinced even more after reading your book, just how much how we view sex really um, affects so much of what we're talking about. Just uh, that kind of all of the things we're talking about. And you have so much more in your book. I had a really hard time even kind of coming up with questions because there was so much. I told my husband, I said, I could do like five episodes with her because there's so much here, so much that I want to talk about. Um, But really that correct view of sex, I think is so, so, so important um, in the way that you talk about. But one of the things too, that I've seen a lot of times, um, the sex is talked about as if it's primarily about somebody being in the mood, like as if that's the primary person. I'm in the mood and so I need the release or something like that instead of just seeing what a beautiful, wonderful thing is sex is for within marriage. And anyone, well, I, I won't say anyone, but a lot of people who've been married a long time may even tell you that libido changes. Sometimes he has a higher libido, sometimes she does and things like that. And I think having that correct view of of sex i think just helps so much in a lot of those things that you can face even some of the problems that you might face along the way yeah and understanding to the different kinds of libido i think we tend to view sex through a male lens and what i mean by that is um, like Active Marriage by Tim LaHaye, one of the first big evangelical sex books, really treated sex like something that he already knew how to do and she needed to be taught. And the reason he already knew how to do it is because orgasm is easy for him and he's probably been masturbating for a long time. Whereas she has no idea. Now, interestingly, women do masturbate as well, but not in as high numbers, but they still do. So this idea that it's all or nothing, again, is problematic. But we see this thread throughout our literature that guys know how to have sex because they can orgasm through intercourse and women need to catch up. And guys are the ones who are in the mood for sex. And so women's libido somehow don't cut it. And yet just because her libido or her sexual response doesn't work like his doesn't mean that she is somehow defective. (laughs) And yet so many women feel broken because they don't want sex in the same way their husbands do or intercourse does nothing for them. And really, that's just kind of normal. Like, that's how God made us. He put the clitoris outside the vagina. He didn't shove it up there so that you would get maximum stimulation from intercourse. You know, the way that women's bodies were designed was we often need him to pay attention to our pleasure in ways that don't directly stimulate him. And that was God's design. And yet, we instead make women feel like we're broken because we need something that men don't. Um, And it's just not true. We need to work with women's bodies and realize this was part of the plan that part of the way we build intimacy is guys spending time serving women, not just rushing through the main event. (laughs) By the way, I really appreciate you talking about the different kinds of libido in the book. Um, I'd never thought of it quite like that, but realized my husband and I've even talked about that without using those categories for it. Um, That was very, very helpful. I mean, you guys did an excellent job just really addressing so many things. I am going to recommend 
I think this is just a great book to read with your spouse. I think, um, I mean, I'm sure that there's going to be some husbands that read it, some wives that read it and stuff like that, and it'll be beneficial that way. But uh, it's set up just very well to to read together. Um, some, when my husband and I read a book, we've done it different ways. Sometimes we'll read it out loud or sometimes we'll both read the chapter and then come together with some of the questions and discussion topics and stuff. So whatever works for you. But I think, I think, this can be very helpful. Have you gotten much feedback? Because I know it's still a pretty new book, but I'm sure you've gotten some feedback. Well, you know, the funny thing is that a lot of the um, aspects that make it helpful for couples, we put in at the last minute. We weren't sure we were going to do it. We weren't sure guys would really read it because we've been told our whole lives, men don't read marriage books written by women. And they certainly don't read sex books written by women. That's why if you want to write a marriage book, you need to do it as a couple um, or else you can only write for women. Um, <laughs> and that's what publishers have told that's us. That's interesting. But we decided that we wanted to. Do yeah, I know. So it's like guys can write about sex for women, but women can't write about sex for men. But whatever. Anyway, so we we decided that we would put check-ins throughout the book. Uh, so the just quick questions to ask each other as you're reading. And then at the end of each chapter, we have these explore together um, sections where activities that you can do to kind of um, integrate what you've learned into your own life. And sometimes it's about spicing things up, but it's not always. I mean, we have, we have exercises on how to honor each other's no's and things like that when someone says no. Um, But what we've heard is that exactly what you said, so many couples are reading it together. And I would say probably like a third of the Amazon reviews right now are by men. And we heard from a pastor somewhere in Texas recently who's taking his 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 guys group through it. Uh, I think it's called like unlearning everything you've ever been taught about sex, intimacy, love and romance or something. Um, and he's created a whole Bible study out of it. And that's really exciting to me. And to, and to my co-authors, just to know that guys are reading this. And we had one guy say that the great sex rescue he felt had a more dignified view of men than any marriage book he'd ever read, which really was such an encouragement to us because this is not a male bashing book. Everyone accuses me of that, which I find so funny because all I'm saying is men aren't animals. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but yeah and and in in the in the chapters on lust and porn we really show how guys are not animals guys can treat women well and um and men are unfairly portrayed as animals quite often like in in our lust and porn chapters we say that men are not like that men are unfairly portrayed as only seeing women as objects and not just that um we've really made men's sex drives and the objectification of women as the same thing. Like we see men and objectifying women as inevitable. And I think for a lot of guys, this has caused a lot of shame they never needed to have. And we've conflated sexual attraction with lusting, which it's not. (laughs) And then guys just feel so trapped. And so I'm just thrilled that men are reading it. And I hope that it's a freeing message for men too. Um, Because I think a lot of our evangelical resources, especially things like Every Man's Battle, have really hurt guys as well. And they need the rescue too. Yeah, my husband has been kind of of like, wow, women were taught that. And I think sometimes men don't even know some of the messages that were (laughs) given. Because I've had women... Uh, message me they haven't been married very long and they're like I was told that my husband's 
going to want sex all the time and he doesn't and I have a bigger drive. I feel like something's wrong with me. I mean, it just does so much damage to women. Um, all these messages that that have been out there in the church. So I'm hoping that men will um, definitely listen. When we did um episode on purity culture, I heard from a couple men that said, I didn't know that that's what women were told. Yeah. You know, I read a stat that 74% of nonfiction relationship books are bought by women. And I would think in the Christian world, that number is even higher. Um, and so, because we go to the, all the women's Bible studies, right? And we read all the stuff in the women's Bible studies. And so many guys have no idea, especially about the obligation sex message. They have no idea that this is what women are taught. And in our focus groups that we did after our survey, we heard story after story from women who said they struggled with orgasm or they struggled with libido even they struggled with sexual pain. But when they sat down and talked to their husband about that obligation sex message, especially, and when he was able to assure them, that is not what I want from you. Like, I want you to feel free. It was like everything changed and suddenly their body started responding. And I, I, I really think that so many men don't know all of the crap <laughs> that women have been told. And when they find out, a lot of them are really appalled. And so I think for that reason alone, it's a great book to go through because together as a couple, because even just talking about what you were taught as a teenager, we rarely have those conversations. And what we're taught as teens really does impact us even 30 years later. Yeah, and growing together in the sexual relationship for anyone who's been married any length of time, it, it is a thing you do together. You know, it's um, hopefully something that you do together. The last thing I wanted to say, I have seen recently, and I don't think it's a majority of men. I think it's very fringe, but I've seen the way and they seem to be in the patriarchy um, extreme, something we talk about a lot, the way that some of these men talk about women and even imply, yeah, women don't want to give out for their husband enough and you know blah 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 and that's why he's unhappy and I just weird stuff I mean I've just been shocked just I've only seen a couple things in the last month or so but I was just kind of shocked the way these guys were talking about women and the assumptions made about what all women must be like you know they don't want to have sex and blah 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 yeah, if that's the way you talk about sex, it is quite likely that she doesn't want sex. Like, I find it so funny when these guys say things like that. What I hear now is, huh, I bet your wife doesn't reach orgasm. Because, like, like, they have no idea what they're giving away. Because when they start talking like that, I know how if she believes what you're saying, her chance of orgasm, her chance of arousal, her chance of feeling emotionally close to you is so low now. <laughs> so all you're doing is giving away the quality of your sex life. Yeah, I think that idea that sex is for the man, um, I, I think there are a lot of wonderful husbands out there. And I, my husband is definitely one of them. I think a there's a lot of great um, husbands that really care um, for their wives. But I think even some men were given that message that sex was for them and they needed it. And, you know, some of this, mm -hmm. that side of the message that some, that some women were given. Yeah. And, and I think what I find so concerning about these guys that you're talking about is that so often it's, it's couched in language of sexual assault and coercion, like that rape can't happen in marriage um, because she owes it to him. And when we start talking about sex as something which is owed, it's very easy to see sex as something which can be taken. Um, 
And the rates of sexual assault and coercion in marriage are really high in Christianity. Um, we have another study on that. It's not out yet, but we'll have more of a frequency table on that. But it is it is very high. Um, and the fact that we're not talking about that, the fact that we still see sex as an entitlement is scary. Like in the 13 best-selling books that we looked at, the one thing that was missing was a robust conversation about consent. We just don't talk about it in the evangelical church. And yet in John Gottman's book, The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, which was our secular control book that we looked at, best-selling secular marriage book, he had like a multi-page thing on what consent looks like in marriage. Mm. Um, and so I hope that's a conversation that we start having instead of just seeing sex as a male entitlement and especially as something which could be taken. Yeah, that is something um, that I have seen where it has been either said explicitly or implied that saying I do was all the consent that a woman ever gives. Mm -hmm. And that that's all that they're saying that about women, that that's the message that we're hearing is that once you said, I do, then you've consented and there's nothing else to say about that. And, you know, that's a a very poor view of marriage. And again, about it, it there are all the things that you're talking about, about husband's, uh, husband's need prioritized over a wife uh, or his pleasure, his release prioritized over her concerns. And I, I think you're absolutely right. We need to change the message that we're giving and we need to be careful about the message that we're giving uh, the men and women around us. Yeah, absolutely. That's- and just bring back to bring back to what's biblical, mutual, intimate, pleasurable. It is not biblical to see sex as an entitlement. There's so much more we could have talked about because you have so much in this book. The survey really brought out a lot of what you talked about, but you really hit hit so much, which I didn't even know some of the things that people were taught going through all of those popular marriage and sex books. And so I think a lot of the things when women come to me with struggles with sex, you really hit. I, I can't think of anything you didn't um, hit on with um this book. And then also you do discuss some of these things. I haven't listened to your podcast yet, but I did go through and look through, um, look through it today. And I know you hit some of these topics on your podcast also and on your blog. I do know that because I followed it for a while. Yes, we have, we have fun on our bare marriage podcast. Um, my daughter, Rebecca, I usually have to calm her down. So I'm the calm (laughs) one and she's the snarky one, but yeah, it's fun. (laughs) It's kind of amazing you've done this project with your daughter. I know. It's really weird. And my son-in-law, her her husband works for me too. And then my other daughter edits all the podcasts. And uh, so the conversations we have around the dinner table are just very weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will link your your podcast, your blog, and then also the book and the episode notes. And highly recommend everyone go pick it up. Thank you. It's been great being here.